Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. Power shortage that resulted in us not being on the latter frequency, but I think it's all fixed now. Hopefully, if you heard me knock on wood. You can also find us on the web at RadioFreeNashville.org. I would tell you that you could listen to it anywhere you have an internet connection, but I think in this day and age, 2021, where most people have had access to the internet for about 30 years, maybe 25 I, I don't think I need to tell you how the internet works. <laughs> but anyway, either way you could join me, I'm glad you joined me to discuss my favorite topic, which is movies. I also want to give a disclaimer that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at the station airing this broadcast or the station as a whole. For this show, I have three brand new movies to review for you. Two of them have been released in theaters, although, and one is a streaming original. Although, one of the theatrically released movies you can find actually on HBO Max. But I'll get to that in a little bit. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is the hotly anticipated musical drama film, In the Heights, which is based on the hit Broadway musical of the same name. And the musical was created with music and lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda and a book by uh, Chiara Alegria Hudes. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but since it's a Spanish name, I probably did. But for those of you who don't really know your Broadway This is the musical that Lin-Manuel Miranda did before Hamilton. And if In the Heights is any indication, I am actually looking forward to the inevitable Hamilton adaptation into a movie. I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon, but Lin-Manuel Miranda's track record in terms of Broadway shows and movies is actually really good. This is not the first movie on which he's worked, but it is the first movie that's based on a musical that he wrote. So, In the Heights uh, takes place in New York City, specifically in the largely Latino section of Washington Heights, New York City. And for those of you who don't know New York City, and considering that this shows being broadcast to you from Nashville, Tennessee, that's probably not a lot of you, but it is a neighborhood in the uppermost part of the New York City borough of Manhattan. And just a little bit of history is named for Fort Washington, a fortification construction at the highest natural point of Manhattan Highland by the Continental Army troops to defend the area from the British forces during the American Revolutionary War. And over the last 250 years, Washington Heights, like many areas in New York City, especially nowadays, has gone through some changes. It used to be a largely Irish working class town, but eventually a lot of people from such Latin American countries as uh, Cuba and the Dominican Republic, as well as 
some other areas of the United States, like Puerto Rico, settled there. And I do think that Washington Heights might be one of those places that fell victim to gentrification, which the musical does touch upon lightly, but it's um, it, it's still a fascinating film, and I think it's probably one of the best movie musicals I've seen since Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street, which came out in late 2007 and was directed by Tim Burton and starred Johnny Depp, Helena Bonham Carter, and Alan Rickman, amongst other fine actors. I think that was the last great musical that was based, that was first of all not animated, and secondly, based on a Broadway musical. But In the Heights is certainly, I think, the best movie musical, not just one based on a uh, uh, Broadway musical that has come out so far this decade. And I do realize that this decade is only a year and a half old, if that. But even still, it's it says a lot. Because, let's face it, ever since Sweeney Todd the Demon Barber of Fleet Street, all the mu- movie musicals that have come out, that have been based on Broadway shows have been lacking to just flat out terrible. There have been some decent ones that have come out like into the woods, for example, but there were other ones like cats, for example, that were just flat out awful. So in the Heights might be a a good return to form for the Broadway musical. But let me give you a few details about what the, musical in the Heights, what the story is. So I told you a lot about it. It's, it takes place in Washington Heights, which is the uppermost part of Manhattan. It tells the story primarily about Usnavi, who is uh, a native of the Dominican Republic, who owns a bodega in Washington Heights, who saves every penny every day as he imagines and sings about a better life. Specifically, what... Uh, Yusnavi, played by Anthony Ramos, really aspires to do is to return to the Dominican Republic and buy a bar that was previously owned by his father that's fallen into disrepair over the years. He wants to build it back up again and create a new life for himself. But as this movie demonstrates, he is not the only person in Washington Heights, or at least not amongst his friends, who want to escape and get a better life for themselves. For instance, there's his young co-worker, Sonny, played by Gregory Diaz IV. And I'm not exactly sure what his ambition is, but he certainly is very smart and he is looking to create a life for himself. There's also a young woman who returns to Washington Heights during the summer after spending her freshman year at Stanford. Her name is Nina Rosario, and she's played by a lovely young actress by the name of Leslie Grace. And she returns to Washington Heights for the summer, but she is unsure about returning to Stanford, which is in Palo Alto, California, i.e. the other side of the continent, for her remaining three years. She knows that her father, Kevin who's played by Jimmy Smits, um, runs a taxi service and is 
actually strongly considering selling his taxi service in order to send Nina back to school for the remaining three years. So there is there that conflict there. There's also a woman that Yusnavi has a crush on whose name is Vanessa, who's played by a knockout actress named um, Melissa Barrera, who is a manicurist and I think maybe even a pedicurist at a local salon who also dreams of a better life outside of Washington Heights. What exactly she wants to do seems to be along the same lines of being a manicurist and pedicurist just at her own salon. And she also wants to, well, basically move on up to a better apartment other than the one in which she lives where the subway train goes by. So there are a lot of characters in this movie with different ambitions and they're all played really well. And Anthony Ramos is an actor I don't believe I've ever seen before, but I'm not going to go as far as to say that he is a novice. He's actually had a lot of acting experience before this on stage and on screen. For instance, he was in the musical Hamilton and actually on the filmed musical Hamilton, which you can find to this day on Disney plus where he plays what looks like a double role of John Lawrence and Philip Hamilton. And I'm, I, I assume that Philip Hamilton is Alexander Hamilton's brother, but don't quote me on that. I have not seen Hamilton, but I believe this is his first role and he's been acting on screen since 2014 when he made his first appearance on an episode of the Showtime series, This American Life. And he's been in a a number of other movies and TV shows and supporting roles ever since. But this guy is immensely talented and certainly earns his place as the lead in this movie. I mean, he can not only act really well, but he can also sing and dance, as can just about everyone else in this film, except maybe Jimmy Smith's. I don't think Jimmy Smith's, uh, he's definitely didn't dance, but I don't think he sang in this movie either, but he didn't exactly need to. He was still a good dramatic force with which to be reckoned, as he usually always is. And, of course, Lin-Manuel Miranda himself plays a smaller role that you might be able to consider a cameo, except for the fact that he pops up periodically every now and then, as Piraguero, who is a uh, shaved ice vendor who is in competition with an ice cream truck. And Lin-Manuel Miranda has some very good comic relief moments here and there. But I I should say, I I probably shouldn't say that it's comic relief because this is a drama, but the dance numbers and the songs are really energetic that you don't really need comedy to have such relief from the drama. I really love this movie. I did not see it in theaters. I actually saw it on uh, HBO Max. But even still, it's a great movie for the summer. It is a fantastic musical. It definitely makes up a lot for, in terms of movie musicals, what 2019 Cats lacked. And it's it's a great and timely return to form for on-screen musicals. And truthfully... The movie musical has never gone away, but I do think that 
Broadway adaptations for movie musicals have gotten somewhat of a bad name since the movie Cats, and not for no good reason. I also should note that In the Heights is director John M. Chu's technically first musical. He has actually directed a couple of dance films previously. Specifically, he's directed Step Up 2, The Streets, and Step Up 3D, which, of course, were sequels to the 2006 movie that put Channing Tatum on the map. And he's also directed such um, documentaries, music-related documentaries, as Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, which I haven't seen, nor do I intend to see that. But in terms of uh, movies, before In the Heights, he directed... Crazy Rich Asians, which was a great film, probably one of the best films of 2018. So even though that wasn't a musical, it still showed that John Chu, John M. Chu, I should say, is certainly a a director upon whom to rely. And in case you didn't know it, In the Heights gets my rating of a knockout. It is a vital, energetic overall just beautiful film that really I think brings the Broadway musical back to its credibility or at least the film adaptation of Broadway musicals and I did say this earlier in the review but I'll say it again based on Cats I was very very worried about the inevitable film adaptation of Hamilton which has not come out yet if you don't count the filming of the Broadway show that's currently on Disney+. Plus, But I think Lin-Manuel Miranda knows musicals. He knows what makes them vibrant as well as what makes them relevant. This is not the first movie musical on which he's worked. He also contributed songs to Moana, uh, the animated Disney film, and other uh, musicals. But this gives me hope that Hamilton is going to be good. Will it be better than In the Heights? I don't know, but In the Heights gives Hamilton, as far as on-screen adaptations, a very tough act to follow. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway. This is a movie that was originally scheduled to be released uh, around Easter time, and it's not uh, surprising to see why. Although, this Peter Rabbit is a creation of Beatrix Potter, and as far as I know, it wasn't inspired by, nor was it the influence of the Easter rabbit uh, character that a a lot of us assume we know. But Peter Rabbit brings us back to the Briar Patch, where Thomas McGregor is now married to B, and Thomas McGregor is played by Domhnall Gleeson. B is played by, uh, oh shoot, I forgot her name, Rose Byrne. (laughs) 
forget I, I made that uh, error. But anyway, they're now married and living with Peter and his rabbit family and friends. But Board of Life in the Garden, which to which now Peter has access to all the vegetables he wants because B loves animals, Peter goes to the big city, which in this case is London, where he meets shady characters and ends up creating chaos for his whole circle of family and friends. Peter Rabbit 2 is directed by Will Gluck, and Will Gluck is a British director who has brought us previously such movies as the original Peter Rabbit from 2018, which was, I think, a decent film. It was well animated, but my problem with Peter Rabbit, the original one, was I felt like they kind of made Peter Rabbit into a Bugs Bunny-like character where not only does he create mischief, but he also winks and nods at the camera, which I don't think Beatrix Potter's original creation ever did or ever intended to do. But Will Gluck also directed such previous movies as Fired Up, which is a cheerleader film I haven't seen, Easy A, which is the movie that put Emma Stone on the map. That was her first um, role in a, oh, excuse me, a first lead role in a movie. He also directed Friends with Benefits, starring Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake, which hasn't quite stood the test of time, but it was a modest hit when it came out. He also directed the live-action version of, excuse me, not live-action, a remake of the Broadway musical Annie, which starred Kuvenzali Wallace, Cameron Diaz, and, oh, Jamie Foxx, and other actors, including Rose Byrne here. And I think that, actually, Peter Rabbit 2 may be his best movie. I think that... It's it's better than the original for sure, but the reason it's better than the original is because it has an original story. It is based on characters and tales of Peter Rabbit written by Beatrix Potter, but Will Gluck and Patrick Burley wrote the screenplay, and I think the story itself is original. In, in other words, I don't think Beatrix Potter wrote a story about Peter Rabbit that was like this, although I may be wrong about it, but... I like the fact that um, they toned down uh, Peter Rabbit being, you know, very self-aware and being like Bugs Bunny. He is very mischievous, uh, even still, but I think he's learned a lot from the original. But also, he joins up with a gang of these rather uh, creepy uh, CGI animals, including... A uh, another bunny who claimed to know Peter Rabbit's father, whose name is Barnabas, who's voiced by Lenny James. And Lenny James is a British actor. You don't know his name probably, but you definitely know him when you see his face. You probably know him best as playing Morgan Jones on The Walking Dead, which he did on several episodes. And he's also been in other TV shows, not just The Walking Dead spinoff, Fear the Walking Dead, but also some other um, uh, shows like, for instance, Save Me, which he was on for about two years. He's also been in a few Guy Ritchie films like Snatch, for example. But Barnabas has a gang of other animals, including uh, a sewer rat and also two 
rather creepy cats and the cats are even creepier when they talk. I don't know exactly if they were supposed to be, uh, that creepy, but the effect was still there. So Peter Rabbit joins up with them partly because he feels like B forgot about him when her self, um, written Peter Rabbit books became an underground bestseller so much so that it attracts the attention of a big time publisher named Nizel Basil Jones, who's played by David Oyelowo. So Peter Rabbit feels a little neglected and he decides to go back to his roots of <laughs> literally and figuratively of stealing vegetables to survive and Barnabas helps him do this. And I actually think the best part of the movie was when Barnabas and Peter begin to plan robbing a farmer's market of dried fruits and vegetables the same way that other people in other movies would conspire to rob a bank. It's a pretty neat scene. There is a really good twist after the heist is pulled off. And I do actually think that Domhnall Gleeson loosens up a little bit appropriately as Thomas McGregor. There there are actually a few very funny scenes which also incorporate CGI to a really good extent, where, for instance, uh, Mr. McGregor is uh, rolling down a hill, you know, just for fun, and he ends up losing control. And the way the camera backs up and actually shows him flopping about as he tries in vain to stop himself. That's a really funny scene. There were a few things that were wrong with this movie. For instance, there's one heist that, that Peter Rabbit and Barnabas pull off, which is where they rob a home of a woman who has several uh, fruits and vegetables in her home. And the way they pull off the heist felt to me a little too violent and a little too much like Home Alone. I also thought that Nizel Basil Jones, the character played by David Oyelowo, is supposed to be the villain. He's supposed to convince B to make her Peter Rabbit books a little bit more appealing towards modern day kids by putting them in space or putting them on the beach and having them um, carry surfboards. And I, I get where the movie was going with that. My problem with it was that David Oyelowo doesn't really make a good villain because David Oyelowo is a very likable person. So I didn't really buy the dynamic of him being the villain in this story where Domhnall Gleeson's character, Mr. McGregor, is supposed to be gradually suspicious of him. But then again, I suppose that <laughs> being charismatic can... Uh, there are some villains that are quite charismatic. I just don't know if David Oyelowo was the right person to play such a villain. But overall... I was actually very impressed by Peter Rabbit 2. The animation in it is fantastic. The animals, other than the fact that they wear, they're partially clothed and they talk, otherwise look like real rabbits. It's amazing when you even focus on them close up. It's, it's incredible how real their fur looks. And I also thought that the voice acting talents of such actors as James Corden, uh, Lenny James, as I just said, 
Elizabeth Debicki, Margot Robbie, and Amy Horn as Mopsy, Flopsy, and Cottontail, respectively, as well as other uh, actors, almost too numerous to name. There are a number of uh, British actors who provide the voices of Peter Rabbit's family and friends. I thought they all did a really good job, whether they're playing the hero or the villain. So I did have a few reservations with Peter Rabbit 2, and I couldn't help but compare this movie to Paddington 2 because it's based on a beloved anthropomorphic animal uh, book series. But Paddington 2, which came out in 2018, was a wonderful film. Peter Rabbit 2 isn't nearly as good, but I will give it the same kind of credit that I gave Paddington 2 in that it follows up a pretty good movie and it's better than the original. So I think for that reason, even though I think David O'Yellow was miscast and there was a little bit of forced slapstick in the uh, second third of the movie, I give Peter Rabbit 2 a marginal knockout because I do think it improved upon weaknesses of the original film. And also the Peter rabbit here, I think is a much more appealing character and not so much a wannabe Bugs Bunny. And even though this movie didn't come out around Easter, even though it was intended to do so, I still don't think kids will be against going to the theaters to see this film. I know that I certainly had a good time when I saw it. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is a Netflix original called Wish Dragon. This is a fully animated film brought to us by Sony Animation, and it is a an American-Chinese computer-animated fantasy comedy film that has a lot in common with Aladdin. That might have been... Part of the reason I didn't quite get into it, because I think that the story arc of Aladdin was about the same. And by Aladdin, I don't just mean the Disney film. I also mean the original tale of Arabian Nights. Although, interestingly enough, when when Aladdin and his wonderful lamp was first published as one of the Arabian Nights uh, stories, the character of Aladdin was supposed to be a Chinese boy. (laughs) So wrap your head around that one. But Wish Dragon is, I might have given away a little bit when I said that it's like Aladdin, but it is about a determined teen by the name of Din who lives in a city in China. I think it's probably supposed to be Shanghai, which is not only China's largest city, but it's also the largest city in the world. It is modern day Shanghai. I just looked that up, but... This uh, teen by the name of Din is longing to reconnect with his childhood best friend, who is a girl, when he meets a wish-granting dragon who shows him the magic of possibilities. And the character of Din Song is, is, play, is voiced in his, in his um, adult form by Jimmy Wong, 
Uh, John Cho plays a character by the name of Long. Uh, Constance Wu plays Mrs. Song, uh, who is Den Song's mother. And there are various other um, characters here. Long, by the way, is the name of the magic dragon who comes out of a teapot. And as I said previously, he is voiced by John Cho, who was the Herald in the Harold and Kumar movies. He's also been in other films as well. And what's interesting is that Wish Dragon was released theatrically in China on January 15th. And the um, what's interesting is that when it was released in China, it was dubbed over in Chinese Mandarin. And actually, the voice of the Dragon Long in the Chinese Mandarin version was Jackie Chan. And Jackie Chan actually produces this film. So there are um, also characters uh, who who provided the Chinese voices as well as the English-speaking voices. But as I said previously, this film is very well animated. And considering that Sony Pictures has done such critically derided films as the Emoji Movie, for example, which was one of the worst films of 2018, this is a return to form for them. And I did like the animation in this film. I liked the way the characters were designed, and I loved how modern-day Shanghai was um, fi- or was drawn in this film. It was it was very vibrant. I don't. I've never been to Shanghai. Maybe that's something that's going to be on my bucket list once everybody in the world just stops um, traveling and driving the. <laughs> airline tickets up, but I, I think this movie provides a very good reason for people to maybe visit that city. But anyway, as far as the story goes, I, I did think that the the story, as I said, was written, uh, it's considered an original story written by Chris Applehans, who also directed the film, and the dialogue writer is I'm going to try to pronounce this name, Jai Kao Lu, uh, who probably wrote this version in Chinese before writing it in English. But I, I thought it was, I, as I said, a little too reminiscent of Aladdin in terms of this young boy finding a teapot that's supposed to be like a lamp. And also, it's a little bit too much like the Disney Aladdin in the sense that the dragon character Long is supposed to be comic relief. He doesn't do anything like celebrity imitations or anything like that. And I give a credit. I give John Cho as well as maybe Jackie Chan credit for not trying to be like Robin Williams. But again, I just felt the story arc was a little too similar. There's a villain who knows what this teapot can do. And he also is able to make, nefarious wishes once he gets a hold of the teapot. And I didn't think overall the dialogue in the movie was really that great. It felt a little too basic and there wasn't really anything that stood out for me in in terms of memorable lines. There's nothing really in this film that I could have potentially quoted. I think as far as, 
as as far as animation goes, it is very memorable. As far as dialogue and story goes, it is surprisingly forgettable. And that's really too bad because I really expected better from th- this movie that was produced in both America and China. It's probably a good way for the the two countries who are probably on the verge of well, fraught relations largely because of Donald Trump to uh, reunite or at least get back onto good terms. But I guess that's another story for another time. But Wish Dragon, I think, is a very good start, not only for diplomatic relations, but also for Sony Animation, which is bouncing back, I think, from the Emoji Movie. They still have yet to recover from that film. But... Wish Dragon gets my rating of a checkout. I think that the animation is certainly worth checking out. I think kids will enjoy this film. I do think Asian people and Asian Americans will love this film, especially how Shanghai, modern-day Shanghai, is depicted in this film. I just think that the story should have been more original, although it did get better towards the end, but there was a bit of a deus ex machina that made up for what was otherwise a very tragic film at the end. So Wish Dragon wasn't perfect, but I enjoyed it for what it was. It just wasn't the best animated film that I've seen so far this year. And considering that we're almost halfway through 2021, I do honestly think in terms of animated films as well as just the year in general, the the better, if not the best, is yet to come. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the films that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into a segment that I previously called What's Coming Up Next. And I think I might return to doing that segment. Over the last year and a quarter... Uh, before the pandemic hit, I used to do a segment that's called What's Topping the Box Office, where I gave the top 10 highest grossing films of a given week. But I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I think eventually movies will start making millions and maybe even some will make billions at the the movie theaters. But... I still think that it's going to be a while before that really um, takes off. So for now, I'm going to hold off what's topping the box office. And some people actually thought that that segment was boring. So I might just drop it all together. But in any event, here are the movies that are going to be released in theaters this coming weekend. 
The biggest movie that's going to be hitting theaters this weekend is The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. This is a sequel to the movie The Hitman's Bodyguard, starring Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. This time, Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson team up with Salma Hayek, Gary Oldman, and Morgan Freeman. So, The Hitman's Bodyguard was an iffy film. It came out after Deadpool when Ryan Reynolds' credibility as an actor significantly increased, but I still thought it was one of Ryan Reynolds' more mediocre films. I, but I guess when you have such great actors as Salma Hayek, Gary Oldman, and Morgan Freeman joining the cast, you can't really refuse that. But this movie brings us back to the bodyguard Michael Bryce, who continues his friendship with assassin Darius Kincaid as they try to save Darius's wife, Sonia. And Sonia, of course, is Salma Hayek in this case. How Morgan Freeman and Gary Oldman fill, um, come into the story, I don't exactly know. But if they sign up to do this film, it is generally a good thing. But... I have seen Morgan Freeman in some bad films before. Usually, I think with one exception, even in bad films, Morgan Freeman has been good. But uh, there was one film I saw with him in it. It came out in 2018. It starred Tommy Lee Jones and uh, Rene Russo. But I forgot the name of it. It It was just overall a bad film. And Morgan Freeman was actually bad in it. But it's probably better that you don't know what that film is. But The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard is a film I will see. I can't guarantee whether or not I'll enjoy it because The Hitman's Bodyguard was not a particularly great film. And I didn't think that Ryan Reynolds or Samuel L. Jackson had very good chemistry together. But maybe the chemistry will improve with this one. We'll see. But I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that's going to be released in theaters is one called Summer of 85. This is a movie that looks to be a foreign film, and it's about a guy by the name of Alexis who, while boating, has his boat capsized and he almost drowns before being rescued by David, who ultimately ends up as the friend of his dreams. That's all I really know about it. The movie stars uh, Felix Leferbe, Benjamin Voisin, Philippine Vell, and... Valeria Bruni Tedeschi. So a lot of foreign names there. I cannot guarantee that I'm going to see that movie, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that I probably will see is one called The Sparks Brothers, and this is a musical documentary. The tagline of this film is, Your Favorite Band's Favorite Band. And it's kind of fascinating when a band that I really like knows a band I've never heard of. One classic example of this, as far as movies go, is a great documentary called Anvil, the story of Anvil. And Anvil was a heavy metal band who, before the movie, never made it big, but they inspired such other bands as Metallica, Guns N' Roses, and other uh, multi-platinum-selling artists. Yet... The two members who founded the band and were still with the band after 30 years were struggling to make ends meet, both in their day jobs and also when they were on the road touring, which is the literal translation of ACDC's, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. 
Also realizing that some people don't make it to the top. But anyway, the Sparks Brothers. This movie is about a musical odyssey through five weird and wonderful decades. Five decades. Wow. With Ron and Russell Mayle celebrating the inspiring legacy of Sparks. Sparks is a band I've never heard of, but my guess is, along with, you know, Anvil, the story of Anvil, as well as another great documentary film called The Devil and Daniel Johnston, this may introduce me to a band I've never heard of before. But this is a movie that I will see, I promise, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that's going to be coming out um, in theaters, maybe in select cinemas, is one called Siberia. This looks like an art house film, which means that it may be coming to an art house theater near you. It stars Willem Dafoe, and the only tagline I can see is an exploration into the language of dreams. That's the only description of Siberia. But considering that Willem Dafoe is in it, it may be intense. It's probably going to be weird. Because that's, those are the kinds of movies that Willem Dafoe does. With all due respect to him, of course. I mean, he is a great actor. He certainly is very mesmerizing. But I do have to say this. If you're going to see an intense movie of his like Antichrist, beware. <laughs> Be very, very, very ware. <laughs> to take a line from Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, Antichrist is a massively disturbing film. I'm amazed I live to tell about how weird the movie is. I, I'm not saying it's a matter of life and death seeing the film, but it is very weird. It is very intense. And I got to give kudos to Willem Dafoe for starring in it, as well as Charlotte Gainsborough. But man, whew, I don't think Siberia is going to be as intense, but it probably will be as weird. But I'll look out for that one. I'm not going to guarantee that I'm going to see it. Another film that is coming out in presumably theaters, is a documentary that's called Rita Moreno, Just a Girl Who Decided to Go For It. This is, of course, a look at the life and work of Rita Moreno from her humble beginnings in Puerto Rico to her success on Broadway and in Hollywood. I love Rita Moreno. My God, I I love her so much. I don't mean that I have a crush on her or I want to marry her. That's not it at all, but... Every time I've seen her in a movie or a TV show, I've loved her performance, whether it's in The Electric Company, which was made for kids, uh, to Oz, which was not made for kids. In fact, some adults couldn't even stomach Oz. But yeah, Rita Moreno, I would probably give her a hug if I saw her in person, and I would probably mistakenly call her Sister Peter Marie at least once, accidentally. That's the character she played on on Oz. But she is actually one of the rare people in the entertainment industry who is an EGOT. An EGOT is somebody who is a winner of an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Rita Moreno is one of the few performers who has won all four, and even one of the fewer performers who have won all four in competitive categories. But in addition to Miss Moreno herself, This documentary also features Morgan Freeman, Lin-Manuel Miranda, and Whoopi Goldberg. And interestingly enough, when I reviewed the movie In the Heights, uh, there is a segment where the lead character in the film names off a number of influential Latino women, and Rita Moreno's name is one of the names to pop up. So it's great that Lin-Manuel Miranda was able to give credit to uh, Rita Moreno that 
she deserved, I think. In addition to the other women he name-checked in the film, which you might want to look up, especially if you're watching the film on DVD or on HBO Max. So the other films that are subject to be released in theaters are foreign films that I don't think are coming to a theater near you, let alone me, but I'll just read them off anyway. One film is 12 Mighty Orphans. This is a film about a devoted high school football coach who, haunted by his mysterious past, leads a scrawny team of orphans to the state championship during the Great Depression and aspires a broken nation along the way. The movie stars Robert Duvall, Vanessa Shaw, Martin Sheen, and Luke Wilson. Quite a cast there. Another film is The Birthday Cake. This is about a man by the name of Giovanni who, on the 10th anniversary of his father's death, reluctantly accepts the task of bringing a cake to the home of his uncle, a mob boss, for a celebration. Just two hours into the night, Gio's life is forever changed. The movie stars <clears throat> excuse me, Ewan McGregor, Val Kilmer, Lorraine Bracco, and William Fichtner. Another great cast right there. And finally, another film that is subject to be released in theaters is a movie called The Serpent, which is about top special agent Lucinda Kafsky, who works for a secret part of the CIA. She give, she's given a special assignment, but then, set up her own, but then set up by her own agency. The movie is directed by Gia Scova, and it stars Gia Scova in the lead role, along with Travis Aaron Wade, Craig Conway, and Alexandra Tabano. So if you're if you find that movie on the marquee, see it if you like. I don't know if I will, but I might seek it out if it's coming out in a theater near me. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now I'm going to give you a list of movies that are subject to be released on streaming platforms, beginning with Netflix. This is for the week of June 13th through June 18th, 2021. And truth be told, Netflix has a lot of films, including some that were made in 2021, that are going to be premiering this week as Netflix originals. There are almost too many to name, so I'm going to do something unprecedented and actually go for other streaming platforms, particularly those to which I've subscribed, and see what is premiering on other channels, or on other streaming platforms, I should say. On Friday, June 18th, on Amazon Prime, there is a series that's called Chivas El Rebaño Sagrado, but... That's a, a series, not a movie, so I'll skip that. But there, yeah, apparently for the rest of the month, Amazon Prime is not premiering any new movies, so I will skip that for now. On Disney Plus, and this is the one I really wanted to get to, there is one film that is going to be premiering on Friday, June 18th, and it's called Luca. Not only is this a Disney film, but it is an animated Disney Pixar movie that will only be released 
on Disney+. Plus. It's not going to be released in theaters, but I don't think, unlike uh, Cruella, that this film will be released on Disney Plus premiere. That's when you pay $30 to see a brand new movie, which I am not going to do. But Luca is a Disney Pixar film, as I said, and it is about an unlikely but strong friendship that grows between a human being and a sea monster disguised as a human being. And this takes place on the Italian Riviera, and it's got a really great uh, voice cast in it. Jacob Tremblay plays the character Luca, and Jacob Tremblay is a young actor who is best known for playing Brie Larson's son in the movie Room, and I was deadly afraid that Jacob Tremblay would turn into a, a teen idol or somebody who nobody would take particularly seriously, but um, his his repertoire of films has been very impressive, and this is the first movie in which he ha- is voicing a character. The I think Luca is the character who is the sea monster who is disguised as a human. Uh, his human best friend is Alberto Scorfano, who is voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer. Again, not an Italian uh, actor, I don't think, but it doesn't matter too much. Um, Maya Rudolph voices Daniela. There's a guy named uh, Giacomo Gianniati, which is obviously an Italian name, who voices Giacomo. Jim Gaffigan voices Lorenzo. And there are many other Italian actors who provide voices in this movie, but Maya Rudolph and Jim Gaffigan are not one of them. I'm very excited to see this film. This is a film I guarantee you I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Moving on from Disney Plus on HBO Max, what do we have? On June 18th, there are no films that are going to be premiering. Um, I guess today the 40-year-old version is premiering on the on the platform. There is a documentary on Tuesday, June 15th that's called Revolution Rent, and I'd be very interested to see what this film is about. As I said, it is not only a documentary, but it is also a an HBO Max original that was actually made in 2019. It was probably shelved because of the pandemic, but this is about a Cuban-American director who travels to his exiled parents' homeland to mount a stage production of the musical Rent, where he discovers an inspiring artistic family and embarks on a personal journey to reclaim his complicated heritage. This movie stars Andy Senor as the Cuban-American director, and that's the only person who's credited here. It's directed by Andre Senor, who might be his brother or some relative of his, in addition to Victor Patrick Alvarez. Sounds like a very interesting documentary, and as I said, it is an HBO Max original. That's actually an HBO original that's premiering on HBO Max, uh, which is not necessarily the same thing. But this is a movie I might see. I'm not guaranteeing it, but it is the only HBO original movie that will be premiering on HBO Max this week. On Hulu, what do we have? On Hulu, trying to get to it, um, there is nothing premiering on Friday, June 18th, but there are a ton of movies and TV shows that are appearing 
on the platform on Tuesday, June 15th. Almost too many to name and none that are originals. So I will skip that. In terms of Paramount Plus, there are... Uh, oh, there's actually one... Oh, never mind. That There was a movie called Infinite that premiered on Paramount Plus on Thursday, June 10th. That's a little late for me, but I might actually review it for you next week. I'm not guaranteeing I will, but I'm just saying that if I see it and maybe if I like it or if I really hate it, I might review it for you next week. I'm just sorry that I didn't know that that movie premiered last week. But the only Paramount Plus original that is premiering on the week of June 13th through June 18th that's worth noting is not technically a movie, but it's an iCarly revival premiere. So my guess is this is more of a special than a film, but if it's a revival, it's probably just one episode rather than several episodes. But the reason I'm not seeing this is not because I'm unsure that it's going to be a movie. I'm just vaguely familiar with iCarly. I remember my younger cousins used to watch it on Nickelodeon. I recognized the girl in it, Miranda Cosgrove from School of Rock. Obviously, she's a very good actress based on School of Rock alone. She, as well as the other kids in that movie, were fantastic. But I don't have a history with iCarly. I have a vague idea of what the show was. When it was on, I was already an adult, and I never watched new Nickelodeon kids shows. So I'm going to pass on that one. So as far as I'm concerned, Paramount Plus doesn't have any new movies. And if that hurts the feeling of anybody at Paramount Plus, then... I sincerely apologize, but I guess I can go back to Netflix to tell you some of the movies that are going to be premiering again for the week of June 13th through June 18th. There are a series of short films that are going to be premiering on Monday, June 14th and Tuesday, June 15th on Netflix. First, there's a package that's called Elite Short Stories, Guzman plus K plus Rebe. That's a Netflix original. And then on Tuesday, June 15th, another set of elite short stories, which is called Nadia plus Guzman, are going to be premiering there too. I don't think I'm going to see this one because it just doesn't sound like it's going to be my kind of movie. But then again, I could be wrong. Taking a step back, on Sunday, June 13th, there's a movie that was made in 2021 that the site at which I'm looking is not... Um, considering a Netflix original, but it's a movie called The Devil Below. This movie is about a group of four amateur adventurers who specialize in exploring remote and forsaken places who pay a visit to Shookham Hills, a town in the remote Appalachian Mountains, which was abandoned decades ago due to a mysterious coal mine fire. It's directed by Bradley Park and stars Alicia Sanz, Adam Canto, and Will Patton. I'm most familiar with Will Patton, but I've seen Alicia Sanz in a couple of movies and TV shows. I think this is a movie that I will see. I don't know why Netflix is not calling this an original movie, because according to IMDb, it was made in 2021. But I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I end up seeing the film. And another film that's going to be premiering on Netflix, but is not a Netflix original, is one that's called Picture a Scientist. I don't know why I'd want to picture a scientist. Why can't I just visit one? But this is one that was made in 2020. 
It looks to be a documentary, and it is about, despite the minimal news coverage, sexual harassment and gender equality against women are no less prevalent in science than they are in pop culture and corporate America. Wow, that is a very heavy topic. But this movie premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020, and I don't think Netflix lay claim to this because sometimes Netflix can put their dun-dun stamp on the beginning of the film, and sometimes they can't. I think it's largely because of legal reasons. But Picture a Scientist sounds like a very fascinating documentary, and I will make my best effort to see this film, but I can't necessarily guarantee that I will. So let's move a little bit further into the week and see what what is premiering on Friday, June 18th. Well, there are a couple of films that are Netflix originals, and there is one that's called A Family, and this kind of sounds like a foreign film based on the fact that it's a very basic title for a film, but I will see if I can find anything about the film, and I can't. So, um, moving on to Fatherhood. This is a Netflix original. It's not the movie starring Steve Martin, at least not that I know of, but it might be It might be a remake. Actually, that's Parenthood, not Fatherhood, the one that stars Steve Martin and is directed by Ron Howard. But Fatherhood is a movie actually starring Kevin Hart. This is a movie I probably will see. It's about a father who brings up his baby girl as a single dad after the unexpected death of his wife who died a day after their daughter's birth. This may be the first drama starring Kevin Hart, but this is a movie I will see, and I will review it for you for next week's show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.